Hello, friend, and welcome to A Nightmare Before Halloween. Take a seat here, next to the campfire. Don't you know the woods are a terribly dangerous place to be alone? I've invited a few friends here to join us tonight. They are almost exclusively crime podcasters who all have a terrifying tale to share. You're going to hear 31 spooky stories. And before we conclude with a soothing, deadly bedtime story, we'll be visited by someone the devil himself would likely think twice before crossing. All podcasts joining tonight you'll find listed in the episode show notes in order of appearance, along with a link on where to find them. If you're in the mood for true crime or spooky tales, or maybe to learn about some other podcasts you could start listening to, well, then you're in the right place. Ah, the campfire feels nice and warm now, doesn't it? I'm Shane Waters, by the way, the host of Foul Play Crime Series. And tonight, stay close. You never know who or what could be lurking in these dark woods. I'll start with the first spooky crime story of the night. The night of Halloween was once called All Hallows' Eve. It was a night where costumes were worn to ward off evil spirits who had crossed over from the dead into the living world to roam. The customary costume was intended for protection, a layer of clothing to change a person's appearance, blend in with the spirits, and dispel any incoming evil. In today's world, it is other humans, rather than spirits, that we have come to fear. When a person disappears, literally vanishes without a trace, our world suddenly takes on a menacing and unknown feeling. Busy lives, bustling traffic, life happening in every direction, and somehow a human being gets swallowed up like a vortex spinning and capturing its prey. When there are no clues, when there is no evidence to find, the world carries on, and yet this individual is no longer in it. For those left behind, they have unanswered questions and a desperate need for answers to try and make sense of it. On February 27, 2003, around 4 p.m., the Minneapolis Police Department received a phone call. A body had been found floating in the Mississippi River, just south of the iconic 3rd Avenue Bridge. The imposing structure with its sweeping concrete arches that flow across the full 2,223-foot length of the bridge connects downtown Minneapolis with the northeast area. As dispatch sent water recovery teams to the scene, detectives were put on alert. There are many different reasons a body can end up in the water. All are tragic events. Some, however, come straight from dark and sinister places. The Mississippi River had been frozen in recent weeks, with the harsh winter keeping the temperatures below freezing. A slow thawing had begun to emerge, the ice cautiously melting, and with this gentle reduction came the release of objects that had been held in its icy grip. As water experts respectfully began to recover the body onto dry land, the glances between them could not be mistaken. They had recovered at least 13 bodies from that stretch of water, and none looked like this. When the air in a person's lungs is replaced by water, the ability to breathe is impaired and restricted, rising until it fills the lungs to capacity. The liquid causes suffocation, air is forced out, and the lungs are immersed completely. 
leading to respiration grudgingly, yet inevitably coming to an end. At this point, a body will begin to sink into the darkness of the waters below and out of sight. Over time, gases are released, swelling up the body and causing it to rise again to break the surface of the water. With the torso more bloated and buoyant, the usual position a body takes is face down, arms out with a slight droop of the hands toward the seabed below and legs that are angled downward. The body the team pulled out of the Mississippi River at 6.28 p.m. that evening had not been in that position. Fully clothed and lying on his back, the male body floated, unanchored in the water. On his feet were slip-on clog-like shoes, still firmly in place. He was wearing a tan-colored Native American costume with dangling tassels up the arms, the top section still neatly tucked into his pants. His arms were crossed over his chest, with one arm gently resting on top of the other. Inside his left fist, clenched and locked in place, was a clump of human hair. Later that evening, the medical examiner was able to confirm the identity of this unknown soul, found so tragically in the icy cold waters. His name was Christopher Jenkins. His body had been found in the river exactly four months to the day when he had so mysteriously disappeared on Halloween night in 2002. Chris was 21 years old and a student at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota's Business School. He was due to graduate with his bachelor's degree in marketing and entrepreneurial management in May 2003. Chris was a happy guy. He had a girlfriend he adored, and he was a captain and goalie of the university lacrosse team. Life was good. On October 31, 2002, Chris was planning a night out for Halloween. His girlfriend, Ashley Rice, was a waitress at the Lone Tree Bar and Grill in downtown Minneapolis. He dropped her off for her day shift that day at 10 a.m. Before heading into the Rosedale shopping mall, he was hunting for a costume to wear out that night. His choice was the Native American costume he was still wearing when he was found in the river exactly four months later. Inside the Lone Tree Bar, after 11 p.m. that night, the group fanned out as they met other friends and enjoyed the atmosphere. Witnesses remember seeing Chris dancing and chatting with people. As the night wore on, it appeared that Chris became more intoxicated. As the time approached midnight, a bouncer made his way over to Chris and was escorted out of the bar. Exactly why has never been fully established with any certainty. Outside there was a chill in the air, and darkness had closed in. Chris had no phone or wallet on him. His costume didn't have pockets. Ashley was carrying his belongings for him, but she was still inside the bar. At 12.30 a.m., Chris was outside the Lone Tree Grill after being shown the door by the bouncer. From there, Chris vanished into the night. The Minneapolis Police Department wouldn't accept a missing persons report until 72 hours had passed without any indications of foul play. They expected Chris to reappear at any time. Minneapolis police detectives did find a witness who they thought saw Chris on the night he disappeared. The witness was cycling across the Hennepin Avenue Bridge at around 2 a.m. on Halloween night. They saw a man walking across the bridge alone. This was the only possible sighting of Chris after he was at the Lone Tree Bar. In a meeting with his parents, police said they believed Chris had taken his own life and jumped into the Mississippi River on the night of Halloween. He had struggled with depression in the past and detectives thought this was the most likely explanation for his disappearance. The autopsy of Chris Jenkins further deepened the mystery of what happened to him. He did not have water in his lungs. It was not the river that took his life. Arms crossed, hair grasped in his hand, 
His body looked like it had been posed, pushed into the water while still in stages of rigor mortis, locking the position in place before the freezing temperatures took hold. The hair inside his fist was believed to be his own. He had no injuries consistent with falling into the river from a height. His slip-on shoes, still in place, and clothes neatly arranged do not support a sudden submersion in water and the inevitable struggle to survive that would follow. The levels of decomposition across his body were much less than would have been expected. After four months in the water, even considering the shocking cold waters of winter, his case, however, remained marked as accidental drowning or suicide. It would be another three years before the status of Chris's case would change. In 2006, the work of Chuck Lausch managed to provide enough material for the police chief to reclassify Chris's death as a homicide. Part of that material was a statement from an unnamed individual who was currently in prison. They said they saw someone push Chris off the Hennepin Avenue bridge and into the water below on that Halloween night in 2002. Chris Jenkins had been murdered, and he might not have been the only one. From 1,200 miles away in New York City, a retired NYPD homicide detective was following the news in Chris's case. He immediately booked flights to Minneapolis. Kevin Gannon was a 20-year veteran of the New York police. He wanted to investigate the details of this case for himself. For the past nine years, Gannon had been working with a small team of retired detectives investigating clusters of drowning deaths of young men in cities across the United States. Almost all of them have been determined as accidental drownings. The team didn't agree. Some of these cases, they believed, were homicides that were connected to each other. This team wanted the world to know that there was a serial killer at work. One of the things Gannon had found that connected those deaths was what he had come to know as the killer's calling card. In many of these cases, left on the nearest man-made structure to where a body is found floating in the water were three simple marks. Normally innocent and happy, in this context, they were mocking and foreboding. They were marks that made a distinctive and unmistakable smiley face. Painted on trees, fences, concrete structures, or walls. It was a face that stared down the observer with a permanent taunting smirk. In a notable amount of these cases, enhancing their ominous impact, the smiley faces were painted with horns. Two other retired detectives, Anthony Duarte and Michael Donovan, were on Gannon's team, along with a university criminal justice professor, Dr. Lee Gilbertson. As the number of cases they were linking together rose, they came to realize these killings could not be the work of one individual acting alone. What has become known as the smiley face killers, due to the sinister calling card, the team believed there was a serial killing syndicate operating across multiple cities and state lines in the United States. Working in partnership, this deadly underground group were silent and covert, and they have been operating for years. Scores of young men, all fitting the same profile, were going missing on nights out. Mostly in their early 20s, they were white men, fit and athletic, usually at universities and doing well in their studies. They were young and seemed to have everything going for them. After vanishing in the dead of night, they were being held by the killers for different amounts of time. It would be days, weeks, or even months before their bodies were dumped into nearby waters and found to be returned to devastated families. In almost all cases, their tragic deaths had been classified as accidental drownings. Intoxicated, unsteady on their feet, 
walking by the riverbank, it happens. People fall in and are unable to save themselves. Only, in many of these cases, these men didn't drown. There was no water in their lungs. There was no bloating with how bodies decompose in water and become buoyant. They had been killed before their bodies entered the water, and often with unexplained amounts of the central nervous system depressant, GHB, in their systems. However this terrifying trend had started, the team believed it had expanded into a network of individuals working in carefully planned and executed, synchronized with each other. The victims were targeted, assessed to ensure they met the same profile criteria. They were then followed, drugged, and kidnapped snatched off the street and away from the safety of their friends during a night out, never to be seen alive again. I don't know about you, but I will never look at smiley faces the same way again. My first friend joining here tonight is Kristen Seavey from Murder She Told. Kristen's tale is on the murder of Alzada Pauline Young from 1940 in Rockland, Maine. Leaves crunched under his shoes and the sun's last rays pried their way into his squinted eyes as John walked down Crescent Street. John knocked on his neighbor's door. he had gotten fed up with his stepdaughter's long absences. It had been a week since he'd seen Pauline. She came to the door and he said, It's time to come home, Pauline. She was just 16 years old, but had a mind of her own, and John was growing impatient with her. They walked home, their backs to the setting sun. It was Halloween night. John's other two children that lived with him were on their way out the door to go trick-or-treating, leaving him and Pauline alone. John, in his authoritarian way, said that her days of staying overnight away from the house were over, and that her wings were getting clipped. She was livid. She said that she was leaving and yelled, to hell with supper, to hell with you, and to hell with mother. John locked all the doors, daring her to try and leave. Pauline grabbed a knife from the kitchen and came at John. He grabbed the closest weapon, a hammer, and threw it at her, hitting her in the forehead and rendering her instantly unconscious. She crumpled to the floor, face down. John rolled her over, checked her pulse, checked her breathing, and discovered that he'd killed his wife's daughter with a single brutal blow. He panicked. Who would believe that a husky stoneworker like him could have felt threatened by a 16-year-old girl? Who would believe that he acted in self-defense? He had to think fast. He picked up her body and moved it downstairs in the cellar as a temporary measure. He cleaned up the kitchen from their struggle. He'd figure out what to do with the body later. His wife and kids went to bed that night, but he couldn't sleep knowing what he'd done and what gruesome task awaited him tomorrow. When he shut the door to his home after ushering his children off to school, he breathed a sigh of relief. His family hadn't discovered his secret. But what now? John lived in a duplex right in the heart of Rockland, Maine. He couldn't just carry a body to the ocean. He had neighbors and foot traffic on all sides so he improvised. He gathered up some sharp tools and went to work, dissecting Pauline's 16-year-old frame into pieces that would fit into burlap bags. Using an axe and a kitchen knife, he cleaved her body into six parts, placing each in its respective container. 
He buried some of them under his porch, which he cleverly accessed through a basement window. He worked in the shallow crawl space beneath the porch deck, which was concealed by a wooden trellis, dug a trench, and buried two of the bags there. He covered them with dirt and placed two wooden planks on top to conceal the disturbed soil. He had four to go. There was some cover in the backyard where there were some outbuildings. At first, he considered working within the buildings, but the shed was chock full of coal and the henhouse had a wooden floor. But there were a few feet between the shed and the henhouse where he wouldn't be too exposed to nosy neighbors. He grabbed his shovel and went to work. When he finished, he made three trips inside, bringing one sack per trip and deposited them into the earth. He covered the soil and then asked a couple of neighbors to move his children's playhouse into the tight spot and conceal the turned soil. The final sack would have to wait for the cover of darkness. His family returned home from their routine daily schedule, and he tried to maintain normalcy, but he felt nervous and wild. After they went to bed, John picked up the final sack and walked to the salty shore of Rockland Harbor. He picked up a heavy rock and stowed it in the bag next to Pauline's head. He cinched the bag shut, bound it with a rope, and walked it to the end of the pier. With his considerable strength, he hurled the bag into the harbor and collapsed. What had he done? On Tuesday, November 5th, five days after he had killed Pauline, John went to the police and reported her missing. He had a part to play, the concerned father. Little did John know, neighbors were growing suspicious. His neighbor, Marion Allen, remembered hearing a woman scream four times, and then a heavy fall, after which all was quiet except the radio. She heard John's wife return home from work and say to John three times, I can't, Daddy. Thelma was accustomed to calling her husband Daddy. After all, he was 21 years her senior, she being 33 and he being 54. What terrible thing had John asked his wife to do? And Marion heard John pacing all night, walking up and down the stairs. She could feel the heat radiating off the walls. He had built two heavy fires, one in the kitchen range and another in the parlor stove. She was suspicious of the purpose of those fires. Stories were circulating around the Phelps home, and on Thursday, a week after the killing, Marion decided to act. She went to the sheriff of Knox County, Earl Ludwig, and told him everything she knew. The sheriff recalled Marion coming into his office and opening up about her fears that something terrible had befallen Pauline. She became so unglued during her telling that he fetched a doctor to treat her. The police all went to the Phelps' home that evening and looked into the matter. John was home and answered the door. They recalled that he was very calm and invited them in to search wherever they liked. They went to the cellar and John invited them to use the short-handled shovel that was laying against the foundation wall to dig around. John said simply that she had gathered her clothing and run away on the night of Halloween. After further routine questioning, the officers left. That might have been the end of the story of Pauline, if it hadn't have been for what happened Saturday morning. Rockland patrolman Ronald Sukaforth was doing his rounds on the cobblestone streets and dirt roads when he came across a middle-aged man covered with blood. He was wandering dazedly near the police station. 
the officer took him straight to Knox County General Hospital. The man said that he had taken five poisonous tablets, mercury bichloride, and when those failed to work, he tried to take his own life by cutting his left wrist. He also told the doctor that there was an important note in one of his pockets, a truth he wished to tell. Dr. Wiseman searched his pockets and discovered a slip of paper, scrawled with a handful of simple words, that revealed that the man before him, John Phelps, had killed his stepdaughter. He immediately notified the sheriff of his discovery. By 4 a.m. that morning, the top brass from local law enforcement gathered at John's bedside and he told them everything. The men summoned additional help and made their way to John's home. It wasn't long before they found the first two sacks hidden underneath the front porch. The local doctor, borrowing a knife from the newspaper reporter, slit the ropes that bound the sack and revealed the right thigh and groin. The second sack contained both legs, still clad with stockings. They next turned their attention to his outbuildings. Wedged between the other two buildings was a children's playhouse. They decided to remove it. Several officers lifted up and revealed that the earth had been recently disturbed. A foot and a half under the surface, they discovered a third sack, then a fourth, then a fifth. Dr. Weissman cut the rope securing the bag and found first the left arm and upper left half of the body, cut down a center line. In the fourth bag was the other thigh, and in the fifth was the right half of the body. The parts were all taken to Burpee Funeral Home, where the doctor assembled the parts like a ghastly jigsaw puzzle. He later told reporters that some of the internal organs were never found. That afternoon, Dr. Weissman told reporters that he believed John wouldn't live more than a week. He was in critical condition. Police headed to Witham's Wharf and started dragging the bottom of the harbor with grappling hooks, hoping to snag the bag that contained Pauline's head. There was an urgency to the search. The sooner they recovered the bag, the better the condition would be, and the sooner they could examine her head to determine if John's story of a single hammer blow was truthful. All week, John struggled for his life, but his strong constitution triumphed, and on Thursday, two weeks after Pauline's death, he was released from the hospital. While John convalesced, police searched the harbor. Hundreds of man-hours and even a diver turned up nothing. Pauline's head had vanished. As soon as John was released, he was immediately arrested on a murder charge and arraigned the following day in Rockland District Court. He pled not guilty, explaining that he only acted in self-defense. The judge held him without bail through the winter to stand trial. In February, four months after Pauline's death, a grand jury convened and indicted John, and he was arraigned again in superior court. The judge read the charges, and to everyone's surprise, John pled guilty. The legal process was over. The prosecutor motioned for sentencing, and the judge obliged, imposing a life sentence at Maine State Prison in Thomaston. John had been jailed in Thomaston for 24 years when in 1964, he petitioned Maine's governor and the executive council for a pardon for the second time. They granted him parole. He lived out his final years with his daughter, Rachel. On August 28, 1968, John died at the age of 81 and was buried in East Hartford, Connecticut, near where his daughter lived. This story became a legend in the Rockland community. People comment even today on blog posts about this murder. They always thought it was a myth 
and were stunned to learn that it was true. The house became known as a haunted house. Kids were fearful going near it. There was a speculation of what happened to Pauline's head. Perhaps it wasn't discarded in the bay. One longtime Rockland resident, who was just eight years old when it happened, believed that John had thrown the head in a quarry behind the church. Another woman said that it was a legend in their family that John had passed one of her ancestors with a burlap bag. And when she asked him what he was doing, he replied that he was going to drown kittens in the quarry. The author of a local history book wrote that it affected the children of the era, himself included. He wrote, It was literally years before any of us would even walk past the house, day or night. Sometimes we would race past the house on our bicycles, but that was the extent of our courage. Take a trip to Rockland, Maine today. It's beautiful. The harbor is filled with sailboats. The streets are lined with beautiful brick buildings. It's clean, manicured, and tidy. But under the surface is a dark chapter and a haunting mystery that still lingers today. How many legends might just be based on true stories, you think? Ah, there you are, Ashley. Ashley is the host of Crime Salad. The story she has for us tonight happened on Halloween night in 2004, when one house in Napa Valley was transformed into a real-life horror movie that began with a terrifying, blood-curdling scream. And you think of Halloween, you think of all the little tiny ghosts, goblins, and princesses with wide-eyed wonderment walking through the neighborhood as their parents watch them go from door to door for a forbidden treat from a stranger. It's ironic because parents spend all year telling their children not to talk to strangers or be swayed by talk of lost puppies, kittens, or free candy. But on this one special magical night of the year, we throw caution to the window and allow the most innocent among us to take candy from strangers. But they aren't really strangers. They're usually kind-hearted neighbors, all participating in the making of innocent children memories. That's exactly how Halloween night in 2004 began for the three young women living in the adorable little house on Dorset Street in downtown Napa Valley, California. 26-year-old Adrian and Sonia and 26-year-old Lauren Mianza became fast and close friends when they played in the same volleyball league. It wasn't long before they moved in together into a charming 900-square-foot bungalow in the heart of idyllic Napa Valley, Soon, they had made friends with another 26-year-old who lived next door, Leslie Mazzara. When Leslie needed a place to live, they invited her to be their third roommate. So that Halloween night, the three of them made dinner together, baked cookies, and they handed out candy to trick-or-treaters and dreamed of someday having families of their own. And by 11 o'clock p.m., they were all in bed, unaware of a watcher fixated on the women inside the house on Dorset. This is exactly how many seasonal Halloween horror-themed movies start, but this was real life and without the soundtrack filled with ominous music. What it did have was a murderous villain standing in the shadows waiting and watching to fulfill his malevolent plan. 
Adrian and Leslie each slept upstairs in blissful ignorance of the horror to come, while Lauren slept in the downstairs bedroom with her German shepherd mix, Chloe. And then around 1 a.m., Chloe began to growl, just as a security light in the backyard switched on. Lauren dismissed the warning bark and shushed Chloe to be quiet. She assumed it was something as innocent as a neighborhood cat triggering the motion sensor. She couldn't have been more wrong. In her ignorance, she calmed Chloe down and easily fell back asleep until she was abruptly awakened again to the sound of someone walking past her room and heading upstairs. Again, Lauren assumed one of her roommates had their boyfriend visiting and again shushed Chloe intending to go back to sleep. And that is when she was awakened one last time. But this time was by a blood-curdling, terrified scream followed by desperate pleas for help. At that moment, Lauren heard someone coming down the stairs heading right towards her. Without thinking, she ran with Chloe to the backyard, hoping he wasn't on her trail. And that is when she realized the intruder must have exited through a front-facing window, which would turn out to be how he entered the home as well. In a moment of stunning bravery, usually reserved for horror film heroines, Lauren climbed the stairs and headed towards the cries for help. As she entered Adrian's room, she noticed the floor was wet. In a surreal cinematic moment, it dawned on her that the floor was soaked with blood of her friends. Simultaneously, she took in the scene and saw Leslie lying face down on the floor, covered in stab wounds. Leslie was no longer moving. The sounds she heard were coming from her friend Adrian, still weakly crying for help while crouched behind the bed in a fetal position. Her throat had been cut. Lauren ran down the stairs to call for help, only to discover that the phone line had been cut. Even though she heard the intruder leave through the front door, she no longer felt safe inside the home. She grabbed her cell phone and headed for her car, calling 911 as she drove away safely. When authorities arrived, they were shocked by the rage and viciousness of the assault. They theorized that Leslie had been attacked first in her sleep and Adrian was attacked second when she came in to help fight off the intruder. Law enforcement were sure that the attacker personally knew one or more of the women based on the number of stab wounds. This attack seemed personal. Both women were stabbed violently and repeatedly. Their best evidence was a drop of blood from the killer left outside the window when he exited the residence. There was also a pile of cigarette butts left in the tree line where the attacker watched the house while working up his courage to kill his target. The DNA left on the cigarette butts matched the DNA of the blood droplet. As a result, police interviewed over 1,000 people and took DNA samples from over 200 suspects. It was almost a year later without a viable suspect, and police decided that they release some of the evidence to the public in hopes that it would generate new leads. They knew that Leslie and Adrian's attacker was a smoker of white European descent. He also smoked a newer brand of cigarettes, which had only been on the market for four months. They were Camel Turkish Gold brand. Authorities interviewed Lauren again and asked if any of the women knew any smokers. That is when Lauren remembered that Adrian's best friend Lily and her boyfriend Eric had helped the women move into their home in June of 2004. Lily's boyfriend, Eric, was a smoker. 
when authorities looked at their files, they realized that Lily and Eric had both cooperated throughout the investigation, and Eric was asked to provide a DNA sample at that time. While they prepared to contact Eric again, something extraordinary happened. Eric Koppel, who was now married to Lily, walked into the police headquarters and confessed. He knew it was only a matter of time before they found him, and as a result, he decided to take the coward's way out and kill himself. He wrote goodbye letters to his parents, family members, and his wife. They all encouraged Eric to do the right thing and turn himself in, which he did. In a plea deal, Eric was offered two life sentences without the possibility of parole as long as he waived his right to appeal the sentences. Now, police discovered that Eric and Lily had been engaged and they were supposed to be married the same day as the attack. However, Lily delayed the wedding and Eric felt like this was all because of Adrian's interference in his relationship. In fact, on the day after the attack, he should have been in Hawaii on his honeymoon. Instead, he was outside the little house on Dorset, working up the courage to act out his rage on innocent women. At sentencing, Arlene and Kathy, the two mothers of Eric's victims, would no longer be silenced. Eric had taken the lives of two vibrant young women in the most terrifying way. Arlene and Kathy wanted answers as to why their daughters had to die. A few months earlier, Eric's mother, Robin, had the audacity to write a letter to Adrian's mother, telling her the murders were God's will and both girls were in a better place. Arlene wrote back telling her that she couldn't have been more wrong and Jesus wept at these women's deaths. Kathy, who was Leslie's mother, shared a 13-page letter with the court highlighting her daughter's many accomplishments in the short 26 years she had on earth. Then she looked directly at Eric and told him she would never forgive him. She stated, quote, I'm told that you have found God since your senseless rampage. It is right for us to hope that sometime, somewhere down the long road ahead, you will learn to take these murders into your heart like a man and let the guilt tear and rip apart your heart from the inside out, as your senseless and violent act resulting in the murders of Leslie and Adrian have done to all who loved them and the lives they touched. May you live a hundred years in misery and an eternity in hell. End quote. Adrian's mother was equally as angry. Eric and Lily had invited her to their wedding to read a scripture, blessing their marriage, all while knowing Eric had taken her daughter from her. She too faced Eric and said, quote, I know you. I know that you are a man who brutally and callously took the life of a wonderful woman. You cannot love Lily and bring a knife into Adrian's home and stab her, end quote. She told Eric that Adrian had to be buried wearing a turtleneck to cover where he had viciously and remorsefully slit her daughter's throat. She called him cruel for inviting her to his wedding to bless his union, knowing he had caused Adrian's death. She ended by calling him a murderer and a coward. Next, Lily was allowed to speak, and we aren't going to share the entirety of her words because someone as grotesque as Eric Koppel shouldn't have anyone say such wonderful and flowery things about him after knowing what he did to two defenseless women. The most egregious of her words were when she told Eric how proud she was of him because he had confessed. She told him, quote, Eric, 
there is nothing in this world you can do to make me love you less, end quote. Apparently, murder isn't cause for a little less love. The monster himself spoke and offered hollow words filled with excuses and manipulation to evoke sympathy. Other than Lily, he chose the wrong audience. In his self-serving statement, he stated that, quote, I am a broken man, a man splintered by a penetrating awareness of my own potential for wickedness. While I cannot fathom the full extent of the anguish I have caused, I recognize that my sinful deeds have inflicted terrific agony on a great number of people. The words evade me to articulate the depths of my sorrow or my terminal I created, end quote. He told the court that he suffered from suicidal ideation as a teenager and was always depressed, which he masked with alcohol and other substances. Then he said, quote, In the months preceding Halloween 2004, several traumatic events happened in my life in rapid succession. My immediate family dissolved largely as a result of certain disturbing revelations about specific members. And worst of all, my relationship with Lily, the singular ray of light in my otherwise black world, was in peril of collapsing. The real truth is that this small, petty, vengeful man believed that Adrian was poisoning Lily's mind against him that she was making her yearn for single life while highlighting Eric's deficiencies. When Lily called off the wedding, he thought of nothing else but lashing out his displaced anger on her best friend and taking Leslie's life as collateral damage. I just learned something about myself. Crime salad is my favorite kind of salad. Hold on a minute. Charlie, your shoe is on fire. I told her not to sit too close to the fire. Okay. Sorry about that. Back to spooky and murdery. Charlie here is a great friend. She hosts Crime Lines, which is a crime podcast that brings in relevant historical and context to cases. This is the story of the Pollock Twins. On the morning of Sunday, May 7, 1957, Joanna Pollock, age 11, and her younger sister Jacqueline, age 6, left home to walk to church at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church in Hexham, England. The church was just half a mile from their home, and they usually walked as a family. But the girl's nine-year-old friend Anthony came by to see if they wanted to go with him. He was serving as an altar boy that day, so he had to be there a little early. As they walked towards the church, a 51-year-old woman named Marjorie Wynn got into her car. Marjorie was in an altered state as she had taken handfuls of barbiturates that morning, possibly in a suicide attempt. As Marjorie approached where the children were walking, she swerved her vehicle across the road, jumped the curb, striking and killing all three children. Marjorie was treated for her injuries and promptly arrested. While Marjorie dealt with the British court system, the families of the children struggled to deal with their grief. John Pollock, the girl's father, worried that his daughter's deaths were his fault. Though a devout Catholic, he strongly believed in reincarnation. He had prayed to God to send him proof of his belief. By trying to test God, John first believed that God had taken his daughters away. But then John began to wonder if God was actually answering his prayer and would send the girls back in new bodies. 
He started telling his wife Florence not to worry. Not only would the girls be reincarnated, they would return to their family. John became even more convinced when eight months after the deaths of Joanna and Jacqueline, Florence became pregnant again. He knew that it meant one of the girls was on her way back. But as Florence's abdomen swelled beyond what it had during her previous pregnancies, John became sure both girls were coming back. Though the doctor said he believed there was only one baby, John was sure it was twins. On October 4th, 1958, Florence gave birth to twin baby girls. They named the girls Jillian and Jennifer, and John looked for the signs he had asked God for, proof that the girls were really Joanna and Jacqueline back again. One early sign was that Jennifer had two birthmarks. They coincided with marks Jacqueline had, one scar and one birthmark. Florence, though, remained unconvinced. A couple of birthmarks were not enough for her to toss out her lifelong religious belief system. John watched as Jillian grew and developed a build and personality like Joanna's, and Jennifer leaned towards Jacqueline. But maybe he was just seeing what he wanted to see. When the twins were three, Florence pulled out an old box of Joanna and Jacqueline's toys. She worried about the two fighting over whatever was in the box, but that didn't happen. Instead, each girl immediately grabbed four different dolls. Jillian grabbed the doll that belonged to Joanna, and Jennifer grabbed the one that belonged to Jacqueline. They both said the dolls were gifts from Father Christmas, and these toddlers could not have known that they were, in fact, Christmas gifts for their late sisters. Here is Florence in an interview explaining that moment. When I got these two dolls out, one said, oh, that's Mary and that's Susan. And it was exactly the same names as my other daughters had named them. And that was the sort of really turning point in my way of thinking. After this, with the girls fully verbal, the evidence that they were their sisters reincarnated started piling up. In 1963, when the girls were four years old, the family went to visit friends in Hexham. They had moved away when the twins were still infants. As they walked through town, Jillian and Jennifer insisted they wanted to go to the park and play on the swings. They didn't know there was a park nearby, but that's not the remarkable bit. Four-year-olds always ask to go to the playground. The remarkable part was that in spite of never having been there, they led their family to the park their late sisters used to play at, as though they knew their way around town. On another occasion, Jillian pointed to Jennifer's birthmark on her forehead, the one in the same spot where Jacqueline had a scar. Jillian said, that's from where she fell on the bucket. And a bucket was the exact thing that had left the gash on Jacqueline's head. Another time, John was wearing a smock that Florence used to wear when she delivered milk before the twins were born. Jennifer asked him why he was wearing it when it belonged to Florence. Jennifer never would have seen Florence wearing that smock before, but her late sister would have. The story of the Pollock twins spread, and paranormal researcher Ian Stevenson traveled to the family home in 1963 when the girls were four. He first interviewed John and Florence in an attempt to assess the situation. After speaking with them and then the girls, he believed that their account was credible. 
But as the girls approached the age of five, their past life memories began to fade. By the time Stevenson visited them when they were eight, the memories were gone. By the time he last checked in with them when they were 20, even the memories of the memories had left. He had to depend almost entirely on John and Florence's reports. At the age of 22, Jillian did experience a flashback of sorts. She remembered playing in a sand pit with her older brothers, but it wasn't a place she recognized. She described the house and the yard, and John said it perfectly matched a property they lived at when Joanna was a toddler, and Jillian had never been to. Those who believe that the Pollock twins are the reincarnations of their older sisters are generally the people who already believe in the principle even before they heard of the girls. And those who think John and Florence projected their own beliefs onto the twins are generally people who already don't believe in reincarnation. Our own biases color how we see all cases, whether they are of this world, out of this world, or simply otherworldly. Are you a believer in reincarnation? I know some folks hope to be reincarnated because they fear death, but I argue there is a fate worse than death. It looks like my next friend is running a little late. They do this sometimes. You have friends like this too, right? While we wait, let's stop here. Part 2 will be available tomorrow, or you may see it available already. Either way, I'll keep the campfire warm whenever you're ready to return. Don't forget, all the podcasts you've heard from are listed in the show notes in order of appearance. Okay, I'll let you go now. See you again soon.